So welcome everyone to a webinar uh, with the Deep Adaptation Forum. I'm Professor Jem Bendel, uh, and joining me today uh, is Professor Christian Arnsberger and Matthew Slater. And what we're going to be doing is presenting the new paper that we wrote together, uh, which is Monetary Adaptation to a Planetary Emergency. So just for some context, uh, Christian Arnsberger is Professor of Sustainability and Economic Anthropology within the Faculty of Geoscience and Environmental Studies at the University of Lausanne in Switzerland. He holds a PhD in economics from the University of Louvain, Belgium, and has been teaching and researching for many years on the interface between economy, society, and the environment. Matthew Slater, some of you will know from working with me in the Deep Adaptation Forum in the past, before we left back in September 2020. Um, Matthew's an open source software engineer and educator in the field of alternative exchange and complementary currencies. And the free software that he's built over the last decade, it's uh, for community exchange and complementary currencies is one of the most used uh, around the world uh, in, in that field. He's got a passion for the history of money and debt. And so he's someone I've worked with on that topic in many ways since 2009. So as a research team, we comprise an economist, sociologist, and monetary activist. And we sought to bring all of that into this new research paper that we launched today. So as such, it's quite transdisciplinary and perhaps quite unusual for a paper on monetary theory and monetary reform. And in a way, I think it's a paper that we should not have had to write um, because monetary, monetary economics is not the field that any of us have paid to engage in, but we felt that we really did need to engage in the topic, uh, and particularly on the monetary growth imperative, due to how in recent years, increasing number of activists and policy wonks that we were talking to have been saying that there's no such thing as a monetary growth imperative, no such thing as the need for the economy to expand just in order to keep the economy stable. Uh, and then for instance, a, a chapter in, um, in this book, Facing Up to Climate Reality, which is very much in the field of deep adaptation, has a yeah, the chapter says that um, it explores this idea of whether there is a, a, an imperative to expand economic activity. And they cite a paper by Jackson and Victor, which says, challenged that idea and even debunked it with a, a model. So, but yet we can see all around us if GDP growth is not occurring, it doesn't seem that everything stabilizes, people do lose their homes, businesses and jobs. Things don't seem to be able to remain the same. Um, and so we decided this topic needed much more investigation. And so 18 months ago, this project began. Uh, and so this paper is the result of work over the past 18 months. So we're gonna have a presentation now from, mainly from Matthew, but with contributions from uh, Professor Arnsberger as well. So uh, over to you, Matthew. Sharing my screen. Can you see that there? Okay, I, I just use this picture where uh, you've got nature going into a grinder and money coming out because I like it a lot and it's very close to the, the subject here. Uh, we're going to open with uh, Christian. Christian, you're muted. I am, sorry. Hello, everyone. Uh, thanks for being here. Um, so as as uh, Jem has uh, 
uh, already uh, explained, uh, the, the idea of the paper is to kind of reactualize or revive the debate around the, um, the monetary growth imperative. That doesn't mean, and we'll come back later to the meaning of the word imperative in our, in our approach, but it doesn't mean, of course, that we think money is the only driver or so source of growth dependency. Obviously, economic growth has become a, a source of almost a collective addiction in, in many ways. And the reason is that we're, we're in a system uh, in which growth has basically uh, helped us to elude and, and uh, you know, lighten the load of many, many societal burdens from unemployment to you know, raising living standards, reducing poverty, improving government finance and so on and so forth. Growth uh, has made us dependent on itself because our system seems to need it in order to resolve the contradictions that it constantly produces, okay? And so obviously there are many growth imperatives in our economy, but we are gonna focus on the monetary one. So um, for many years, uh, the three of us have been using this argument that is very simply stated here by Charles Eisenstein, because debt is always greater than the money supply. Um, the, sorry, it's covered up. The creation of money creates a future need for even more money. Um, this argument sounds very self-explanatory. The idea that um, interest cannot be paid because it's not created. Only the principle is created. The first time we came across this argument, the earliest that we could find was in about 1999. Richard Douthwaite uh, put it in his book, The Ecology of Money. And looking at that argument closely, it was quite good. But it seems that the, the, the repetitions of that argument have, been, have simplified it and they've lost something. And so even uh, in 2020, uh, Jason Hickel said, uh, banks create the principle for all the loans they give, but they don't create the interest. There's always a deficit, always a scarcity. Um, and this is a very, very compelling argument. And so the three of us have used it in the past. And when we heard that it had been uh, debunked, we wanted to return to the subject to find out why, to correct ourselves. The, the debunking comes from the post-Keynesian school of economics, and they have a kind of accounting called stocks and flows, which is very good at representing debt and the negative balances in the economy. Because as I hope you all know, uh, money is created when banks create the, the money, they issue a loan. And so it's a negative balance on the bank's balance sheet. And so stocks and flows accounting takes account of that negative balance. Um, and it's very, very simple. If you look at the argument that the interest is never created, so therefore the debt can't be paid, you can debunk that in one sentence. And Steve Keane does it here. Uh, the argument is wrong because it confuses a stock, a debted dollars, with a flow, uh, the interested dollars. And the picture of the bath and uh, the water flowing into the bath and out of the bath and then the stock of water in the bath illustrates that quite well. Uh, to put it in more economic terms, the argument is simply that 
um, the interest doesn't disappear when it's repaid in the same way that the, the stock of debt disappears when it's repaid. The interest is effectively recirculated. It flows through the economy. Um, and then it becomes available for the debtors to earn again. Um, so that's why there is always enough money, uh, at least in principle, looking at it at that level, um, for the debts to be repaid. Uh, the problem is if debts can't be repaid, then more money has to be borrowed to replace it. And that's where the growth comes from. So the essence of this argument comes down to is debt payable or is it maintainable on a month to month basis? The models that uh, post Keynesians have built, particularly Jackson Victor and Cahen Four and Lavoie, um, they both modeled an economy that didn't have any capital accumulation. Um, and they stated this very clearly. Um, Jackson and Victor in their paper said, uh, taxation is initially set so that government debt does not accumulate and financing behavior is determined in such a way so as not to accumulate capital assets beyond those deemed necessary to satisfy ex expected demand. And similarly, uh, Cahan Foho and Lavoie said in our full stationary state economy, there is no accumulation of private wealth. Accumulating private wealth is tantamount to capital in a broad sense, and no further accumulation of capital by the private sector as a whole occurs. Um, so they've done this kind of uh, separation in order to make the model work, in order to prove the point that um, issuing money as debt does not create growth, they have had to prevent or model out the capital accumulation um, from the model. So they have uh, effectively uh, an economy that's 100% flow. All the money is flowing all the time in order to, uh, in order to make the model work. And this is a bit problematic for us because we understand the, the functions of money uh, are both to be a medium of exchange, which is to say it should flow, but also to be a store of value, which is the function of money that doesn't flow. So if you model out the store of value function of money in order to prove your point, you've really redefined money itself. Um, not that that's a bad idea. Uh, we support in our conclusions uh, ways of tweaking the definition of money or separating out the functions of money, but we don't say that um, uh, that, that represents anything that um, in, in modern reality, in the economics as we know it. So we're going to talk about three arguments that we put forward in the paper that we think haven't been refuted and that we think deserve more attention. The first one, uh, I've touched on it already, that uh, the hoarding and accumulation of debt means that uh, the money system becomes unsustainable if money is issued as debt. The second one that um, between elites, they circulate money amongst themselves. And so that money becomes unavailable for debtors to repay. Uh, and the third one, uh, twice lent money, which has been 
argued for many years by Paul Grignon. First of all, Christian. I think I've gone backwards. Christian. Are you muted? Oh my God, sorry. Uh, so before, before um, we develop these three points, just a, a quick but very important, you know, um, uh, a point here, which is that, you know, of, of course, if, if in a sense, people like Jackson and Victor and others have uh, set the bar very high for what an imperative is supposed to mean. Okay, if you if you if you're gonna try to want to to demonstrate that you know uh, credit creation or charging of interest, you know must always create growth no matter what uh, else is happening in the system. And no matter the nature of money, the nature of accumulation, whether there is accumulation or not, and so on, obviously you're gonna make it easier for yourself to demonstrate that there's probably not a growth the imperative linked to money. So th there's a strange seeming strategy in, in Jackson and Victor's uh, kind of seminal paper, which is to, argue that neither credit creation nor the charging of interest create a growth imperative in and of themselves or in, an, in another passage of the same paper. The results of this paper suggest that it, it is not necessary to eliminate interest-bearing debt per se, as if, you know, if you set the bar that high, obviously it's relatively easy to demonstrate that uh, you know, there's no growth imperative if you're not looking at any other part of the system. And, and, and as Matthew said, the way that money is also used as a store of value, the, the, the overall logic of our in, unequal and inegalitarian system of, of capital accumulation. So what we're saying is that we need to see, to see the very notion of an imperative as something much more systemic and uh, complex and subtle in the sense that obviously we're not trying to say that money or you know, money is the only source of, of, of uh, a growth imperative. We're just trying to show or, or that, that, um, that it's a major driver uh, in our system, which through the mechanisms of money creation and money distribution in the system and accumulation, there is a pressure, a systemic pressure generated along with other factors, which pushes GDP to have to grow unless the economy ends up collapsing. This is, a, this is, you know, this is the important point that we wanna make clear in our approach. Go on, go on uh, Matthew. So uh, there's a connection between the gross domestic product which is uh, what we use to measure growth and the amount of debt in the system. And uh, in the paper, uh, we draw a connection between those two because you have to prove that uh, uh, if the money system is driving growth, then there's a connection between debt and growth. And so when we say the debt is always growing, uh, then that means that the economy is always growing. Uh, now, the problem is, if you imagine that um, money is created as debt, so somebody issues a debt of £1,000 and then it's spent into the economy and uh, some um, multinational corporation earns it and puts it in a tax haven, 
where they earn interest on it or something, then the original borrower of that debt is not able to repay it back. It's a very, very simple dynamic. Um, you can argue that um, the money in the tax haven is actually being lent back into the economy, but that doesn't actually make it more available for debtors to earn because it creates another debt. And so the idea of capital accumulation itself, when money is debt, prevents the debt from being paid. And I want to ask you a question. If you imagine that the, um, there was a law to prevent capital accumulation or prevent too much capital accumulation, in order to ensure that the debts were payable, what would the economy look like? Would it resemble any economy that we imagine now, or worse still, would it resemble anything like capitalism? There seems to be an idea in capitalism and in the economy as we know it and as we conceive of it, that money has to be savable. It's your private property. You don't have a social obligation to others to spend money that you earn in order to allow the creators of that money, the borrowers, to be able to spend it back. So uh, this trilemma seems to be apparent. If you want to have a post-growth economy, you cannot have a debt money system and unlimited monetary accumulation. You can accumulate other things. You can accumulate Bitcoin. You could accumulate uh, Ferraris. Um, they wouldn't prevent people from paying off their debts, but having high cash balances in your bank account seems to us to obviously prevent people from repaying their debts or to make it more difficult. It reduces the amount of money in circulation and therefore increases the pressure on debtors to earn a smaller amount of money to repay it back and creates competition and all sorts of unhealthy dynamics. Can I just go back to the trilemma just to, just to spell it out a bit further, Matthew? Mm -hmm. So basically it means you can have debt money and monetary accumulation, but not a post-growth economy. You could have post-growth economy and debt money, but not monetary accumulation. You could have monetary accumulation and a post-growth economy, but not with debt money. So you have to, two of the three, take your pick. That's the, uh, the idea of the trilemma. Thank you. So, so one, one version of what Matthew just explained, uh, when he said, you, you know, if you buy a Ferrari, it's, you can accumulate Ferraris. That's partly true in the sense that when you buy a Ferrari, there's income that's being paid back into the economy. And if you buy many of them, you know, you, you kind of nourish the economy. However, if you only buy your very rich neighbor's uh, houses, and if the, if the money that you've accumulated never flows back to Main Street, but it's kept in like what we call elite pools of wealth in which, you know, very extremely wealthy uh, actors uh, and, and, and people uh, exchange goods amongst themselves and reinvest in, their, in each other's wealth so as to make it grow with money that was initially created as bank debt, but then has be become kind of congealed within these elite pools, you have one instance of what kind of starves the rest of the economy, the main street economy of the means to, of, of the average, most average debtors to pay back their money. So inequality 
you know, accumulation of wealth in fiscal havens and in extremely uh, low spending propensity populations contributes massively to, uh, to the, the growth imperative. So this final argument comes from the animator, Paul Grignon, who made the series of Money as Debt videos. He seems to be the only person making this argument, but to us, it seemed very, very compelling, and we think it deserves a proper answer. So the argument builds on what I said earlier about money that goes into tax havens, or really any money that goes back into uh, an account where it is then re-lent. Because when money that's created as debt is saved and re-lent, it results in two debts for one principal. And uh, this happens many, many times. Uh, you can imagine a whole chain of money being uh, borrowed, uh, spent, and saved, and then lent again. And it's the same money each time, and each time it builds up another debt on the same principle. And so you can imagine, if this is true, it builds up an immense pressure on debtors to repay all of those debts or to maintain all of those debts using the same small pool of actual money. And we looked around and uh, it seems that uh, in America particularly, and also since the, the crash of 2008, more and more uh, money is being lent in this way. So banks are creating less of the, the, um, the loans and more of it is coming from full reserve lending institutions. And so that's creating, we believe, uh, a pressure on a small pool of money where more and more people are demanding it in order to be able to pay off their debt. I just want to interject to say, um, please, if you have a question, I'm gonna select them from the chat. So please, as we come towards the end of the presentation, please put in your questions now into the chat. Back to you, Matthew. So basically, uh, you know, our, our paper is obviously, and if you've read it, you, you know it, <laughs> it's a big picture paper, but at the same time, it tries to be specific about certain mechanisms. And what we think we've uncovered is basically that, you know, when people uh, talk about growth and the need for growth and so on, of course, they're like the different, you know, the, the, the various blind uh, men, uh, looking at an elephant from different angles and it actually is the same animal okay so uh, obviously COVID-19 debt and climate chaos are uh, you know contributing massively and will keep contributing in various forms to the need for growth mm. and also causing uh, causing uh, problems there's a sound problem here um, but what we're trying to say is that um, talking about these problems independently of the actual factors that we're looking at, which are the bank debt character of money and the, the, the systemic dynamics of capital accumulation makes it almost impossible to actually address in a credible manner the COVID-19 debt, other debts that might uh, arise <laughs> 
and the, the, the problems uh, uh, generated in the future by climate adaptation and climate chaos. I would add uh, another leg on the elephant of growth, um, the idea of needing to create social justice in the future. So many, many economies are looking to grow and also the, uh, the green revolution. If we're going to change our whole energy systems, uh, a lot of uh, investment will be needed for that. So deep adaptation, for those of you that don't know, is an acceptance that maybe it's too late to prevent uh, catastrophic climate change. And so um, we need to put attention into extending the glide and softening the fall of what could be a civilizational collapse. And so um, it, it seems to us that late stage capitalism, um, particularly post COVID, post uh, 2008 bailouts, is only going to make things worse. It's going to increase the suffering um, of climate change if it doesn't already create a lot of suffering. Um, it's going to do this in three ways, by starving the economy of money, um, this is money that would be needed for building resilience to uh, weather disasters and other uh, kinds of disasters. Um, because there's no money, because of austerity, things like that. Um, that seems to be the way forward. The, the capitalist story says that there isn't enough money and therefore we can't have these things and we'll have to make do without. Uh, late stage capitalism is also centralizing a lot of our economic and political systems. I suppose Amazon is the poster child for that. Uh, whereas before we would uh, get books and other things from numerous uh, high street uh, outlets, more and more stuff is now coming from just one uh, company with one supply chain. And that's very, very efficient. Uh, we, we see cheaper goods, uh, usually through Amazon, but it's not very resilient. We need to have more decentralized systems uh, if we're anticipating various kinds of chaos through climate change. And finally, we're noticing in late stage capitalism, uh, people are getting unhappy. They're not voting in, um, in ways that empower them to make decisions. We're seeing more and more plutocrats and demagogues in charge. Uh, there's a book about um, the, the moral value of economic growth. And it says that uh, economic growth says that societies are actually happier and more moral uh, when economic growth is happening. And when it's not happening, you run into problems like intolerance and fascism and things like that. And we can see that happening today, whether or not that's the reason. So we'd like to make a very strong case for degrowth. Jem, you wanted to say something. Just that uh, we don't support the views of that book in our paper. I, I think it's an awful, uh, uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a very problematic perspective. Um, and you can see that actually uh, those economies that grow a lot create a lot of inequality, which actually causes all manner of problems as the, the book Spirit Level says. So we need to look at ways of uh, communities thriving uh, and also becoming more resilient as disruptions hit. 
uh, without this dependence on the escalating amount of consumption. Now, I mentioned it, the, the book, The Moral Consequences of Economic Growth, because it, it puts the case for what's widely believed, um, that growth is good for so many reasons. Uh, so we want to argue for degrowth, which is to say that uh, a steady state economy is not enough. Many economists are talking about the steady state economy. They're making the case for it. They're modeling it. But still, if we're using what? three and a half planets worth of resources per year, then uh, any serious proposals for a steady state economy amount to omnicide. Um, we can only talk about the future in terms of degrowth as far as we can see. And degrowth economics is an order of magnitude beyond steady state economics. So steady state economics is a big jump when you're talking about not growing anymore. But when you're talking about shrinking the economy, it's different again. And only the degrowth movement is actually looking into this. Uh, unfortunately, they don't seem to be getting a lot of traction. The kinds of things that uh, need to happen in a degrowth economy uh, are very much a redistribution of wealth. Because if the economy is no longer growing, and, and when it grows, all the wealth tends to go to the, the most wealthy people already, then if uh, that wealth needs to go, in the absence of growth, to everybody else, or they will get very, very poor, um, and that will create uh, social instability, not to mention suffering. And also, we see degrowth as a change to the culture. It's not just a, an economic thing, but it means changing everything. It's very, very profound. So we make some policy suggestions in the paper. We're not going to go into details about them here, but the general idea of the policy suggestions uh, links back to what we've said before. You need to help money to circulate in order to make it available for debtors to earn, because if debtors can't earn the money that they borrowed and spent, then they will only have to borrow more in the long run. So you can do that by restricting the accumulation of money. Um, how that works in practice, we don't really know. Um, you can have things like maximum bank account limits. Uh, these things haven't really been done uh, because it's, it's not really in the capitalist paradigm that you would want to limit how much money somebody can earn or save. Another way of doing it might be to encourage people to save not money, but other things, non-debt assets, we call them here. I mean, you could issue another kind of money that's purely an asset without the liability side. And then there would be no problem in saving that because the, the debt money could circulate while you're saving the asset money. Or you could have new financial tools to aid circulation. And with this, we mean things like credit clearing systems. So that's what I've been working on for many years. Uh, with a credit clearing system, you're not issuing money in a limited quantity, but you're uh, allowing short-term debt to accrue between members of the supply chain, which then cancels out. It's, uh, it's the same in a barter system. There's no money, it's just accounting. 
Uh, and so that enables always sufficient liquidity for trade to take place. And of course, you can reduce interest. Interest, uh, we didn't stress it earlier, um, but the original uh, formulations of the monetary growth imperative all focused on interest as something which goes out of circulation and therefore is the root of the problem. Um, our idea of the monetary growth imperative says that interest exacerbates the problem because it makes debt harder to maintain. It increases the monthly burden of what debtors have to pay. So if you reduce interest, you therefore make debt more maintainable. And all of this uh, probably has to take second fiddle to tackling growth directly by reducing debt, cancelling debt, and reducing consumption and the need for consumption. Um, so uh, helping money circulate and all of those things wouldn't really make much difference if the economy is still going as fast as it wants to go. Are you ending there, Matthew? Or? I'm inviting uh, either of you to chip in. Thanks for listening. <laughs> so, yeah, let's have questions because it's... Okay. Just want to say I've been looking at the, the, the chat box and just to say that when we're talking about how it could work if people stored Ferraris, not cash, that doesn't mean we're advocating that. It's just to say that, that um, how for what kinds of accumulation could work in a debt money system without requiring an expansion of economic activity in order to avoid the disappearance of the money to service debts. So we're just explaining the, the, the way the mechanics works, rather than uh, saying uh, that people should be accumulating in those kind of ways. Of, of course, um, we don't think that. So um, I've seen the questions that have been put in the chat, and I'm going to now um, invite you to, when I mention your name, um, uh, unmute yourself. But hold on, the first one here I see uh, has asked not to be um, on video, so I'll read it out for you. Uh, and then our, next I'll come to Kimberly. But for now, Matthew um, and Christian, the question we're being asked by another Matthew, who's part of the Deep Adaptation Forum, do you hold any hope for policy reform on the basis of these insights? Or would you push instead for local initiatives which bypass the money system altogether? Well, I'm a bottom-up guy. Um, it was uh, from Jem's initiative who's been working top down for all of his career that we invested all this time in this paper. So um, it's a personal thing. Um, I don't hang around in the corridors of power. I prefer to work with ordinary people and build practical solutions. So that's my answer. I, I, I would just add that um, I kind of take the opposite uh, view, which is why we're working together. <laughs> Uh, I, I think both are necessary, and uh, but I would answer no in the you know in the short run. Obviously, this is the kind of paper that doesn't think that its insights are going to be useful within the next week. Uh, however, it's essential that these insights are present in the debate that they be given as much 
you know, airing time and, and, and debate time and room in the public sphere as, as possible because in the end, we are gonna need systemic changes to, to the money system. And uh, surely the, the, the bottom-up uh, initiatives that uh, Matthew just mentioned are crucial in helping that along. But I think without top-down uh, changes as well, propelled by popular pressure, uh, you know, the, the, the successes we can have will be limited to the areas in which we've managed to do bottom-up change. And so I think both are essential. Mm -hmm. So this, uh, I think, Kimberly, your question, the first one you sent in the chat relates to this then, which is a, a bridging question. Over to you, Kimberly. Thank you. Thank you all very much. Uh, and yeah, you have answered um, some of my questions already. I posted my question too early in the webinar. Um, so it was kind of what or who are you trying to influence with this paper? Um, and <clears throat> I'm not an academic or an economist. Um, just a committee deep adapter wanting to respond lovingly to our predicament. So what, what advice would you have, you know, in terms of what to do now with any, any wealth or money I, I have? Um, yeah. Oh, a slightly, a slightly different question. Yeah, cool. Uh, Christian, you've got ideas. No, no, I'm, I'm not a financial advisor. I will not commit publicly on a YouTube channel to advising somebody about their wealth, uh, wealth management. You do that, Jim. You'd be liable later. Also, I think it's a different question. The question of what I should do with my wealth um, is very different to what should everybody do with their wealth. Because if you do something uh, that's uh, against what everybody else is doing, you could just lose all of your wealth. Yes. And so no, we're, we're talking about what happens at the policy level. I know, I know. But what can I do to further your policy aims, I'm saying? Well, I would advocate um, credit clearing systems as a way of creating uh, liquidity between businesses so that they can operate without crushing into debt. So I, I want to, so there's a number of questions in there. Uh, Kimberly, the one, the bit that I uh, was in, I picked up on was, how does any of this really relate to deep adaptation? Um, and because, you know, aren't we just anticipating everything to collapse anyway? So why don't we just get on with that rather than trying to influence policy at this high level? Because, you know, why would the big banks listen? Why would politicians who are just subservient to them listen? Why would central banks listen? Um, these are some of the most conservative institutions and professional cultures in the world. Um, well, because if we keep this current system, then we, it's like, you know, uh, Pablo Savigny in his book, he, uh, he talks about you being in a car where everyone can see the wall that you're driving towards. Uh, and, but if we keep this system, we're speeding up as we're actually slamming our foot to the floor and speeding up into the wall. Uh, and it, it, it will make matters a lot worse. Um, so I'm not advocating these changes to suggest that we can therefore really uh, avert the collapse of modern industrial consumer society, but I'm advocating these changes to actually give us a better chance to do less damage, to create more opportunities probably at local, multiple local levels for alternative ways of living to 
to exist. Um, but yeah, my approach is I'm quite agnostic on the future. I don't really know what's going to happen after a collapse of this system, how bad it's going to get or continue to get, depending on how bad the environment becomes as well. Um, so I think really some people think the deep adaptation agenda is mainly or mostly or only an inner journey about finding inner resilience amidst a world that's going more and more mad. And um, But... Uh, I don't believe so. I think it also needs to articulate a policy agenda um, in order to try and reduce harm at scale, because you know you can't just turn away from what's happening in a nation or in a region or on the planet with your own local transition project, um, because if societies collapse in violence around you, um, then you, that's not going to really work for your own resilient community. But also how holistic is that? How, how universal are your values if you're just going to turn away from a world that is being oppressed by this monetary system? So I think really what we're explaining today is entirely coherent with and complementary to the kind of work that, for example, Matthew Slater has been doing in The Gift for decades on, well, not quite, it's almost 20 years, isn't it, Matthew, now, working in uh, uh, providing systems for communities to de-link from the monetary system and, and thrive on their own. Um, so I'm I'm going to come to the oh you also Kimberly you were saying the desired outcome for this paper and what to do about it well um, there is something called the Extinction Rebellion's Money Rebellion which launched about a month ago and it's been large, by and large completely ignored by the media um, so do check out Money Rebellion and it's trying to make the connections between ecological and climate crisis and how bad it's become with the monetary system. Um, and I would say, join it somehow, support it somehow. Um, I'm, not, I'm not fully involved in it myself. I've been busy with other things, but I would definitely check it out. And also challenge environmental organizations. Why, why isn't Greenpeace saying anything on this? WWF, Friends of the Earth. Why is it they've been silent on the nature of banking? Um, and the monetary system. So I would also, many of you probably are members of these things. So I would, I would say, go for it, talk to them. Um, Jerry, you have a question, which would slightly change focus, I think. Um, Jerry, if you unmute yourself and, and ask your question. Hi, can you hear me okay? Great, yeah, first off, thanks to the three of you for uh, bringing this issue up and relating it to deep adaptation. I can't claim to understand it too deeply, but I think I intuitively grasped it when I was around 18 years old. I made a t-shirt that said down with money. And um, I'm still having that intuitive sense today that something's deeply wrong with it. And um, I'm just wondering what any of the three of you might think about some of the work being done with cryptocurrencies and the blockchain and another one called the Holochain, which really uh, is promoted as something with power to uh, build into its architecture, decentralization, uh, greater autonomy of users, uh, means to collaborate. Um, is this in alignment with any of the things you're thinking about or is it, is it just an overly Thank high- you, yeah, Matthew, do you want to come in on that one first? 
Um, yeah, I've been uh, looking at cryptocurrencies almost since the beginning. Um, I'm very happy that uh, they provide an alternative uh, in some respects to the national currencies and uh, technological challenge to them. But monetarily speaking, they fall under the Austrian School of Economics, which says that money should be an asset. And this is uh, problematic for many reasons. However, if money was an asset, if Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies did take off, they would fit into our policy proposals as a way of saving money that wasn't needed for circulation and for paying back. Um, generally, I don't anticipate that happening very much, and the cryptocurrencies look like a bit of a, a dead end, monetarily speaking, or they, or they could even be socially counterproductive, since they emphasize very much the value of private property and the lack of social responsibility that goes with owning assets. The Holochain project, um, I do very much support. They uh, did their initial community offering using a mutual credit paradigm. So they created a, a debt in an account for every token that they sold. And this is because those guys have a deep understanding of the money system. Uh, the previous project before Holochain was called the Metacurrency, and they've been looking at that for many years. So they understand credit and mutual credit, and they wanted to do an initial coin offering that was in the spirit of that, uh, where the tokens had some value because something was being promised for them, not just because there was 100 million, billion, trillion of them. So yes, I'm following that project very closely and uh, I'm also excited about the technology itself, which is offering, uh, when it comes out finally, the ability to make distributed apps. And that means um, apps on your phone that don't depend on a central server. They all talk to each other directly. And so that reduces a, a central point of political control. So just on that, um... Many people who have heard of cryptocurrencies um, but haven't looked at them closely um, might hear about the, uh, the the awful energy footprint of Bitcoin, which is now equivalent to is it Argentina and Austria combined. Um, so that isn't uh, that isn't the same for all cryptocurrencies. So um, Bitcoin, for example, uh, uses something called proof of work, which is computing power done to produce new Bitcoin and to secure the transactions. That is a um, environmentally criminal system as far as I'm concerned. And many people who are crypto proponents like to sort of say, oh, compare it to a gold mine. But it is an absolutely dumb uh, innovation in terms of the environment to have proof of uh, work currencies. You can do something called proof of stake and I believe Holochain does that and, and various other Thing. So Bitcoin is actually a very old and anachronistic and I would argue redundant technology, um, but it's just popular because it's the fair first and the most famous one. Um, so, yeah, we um, we mentioned the role potentially of central bank digital currencies, um, like uh, as people are no longer really using much cash and we're, you know, therefore more and more of us are completely dependent on the private banking system for our transactions. So there's, it, it, is, it is something that central banks and treasuries should naturally look at and roll out, which is a digital alternative to cash. When people question the role of governments, then often 
there's some completely misinformed assumptions about who's really involved in the crypto space. You know, Bitcoin is not decentralized. Uh, it's, it's completely controlled by the mining consortiums who own, who own the chips and have made massive investments in, in that. And they will therefore never want it to move off this incredibly energy intensive mode of, 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 of securing the, the blockchain. So, um, yeah, there's a hell of a lot of, I think, libertarian nonsense spoken about things like Bitcoin. And actually, we need to look much more closely at monetary systems that are in and exchange systems that are in the control of people themselves. So where the, there's, as Matthew was saying, that money is issued as a, as, as a means of exchange for people to do stuff for each other. So it needs to be about real wealth creation and what real life rather than just some abstract tokens which is i think um highly problematic invites speculation and hoarding uh, and doesn't encourage the kind of behaviors we want to create in society or support in society so um that would be my answer to the the crypto question yes crypto i think has a big future but not in the way it's being done now which is just uh using bad technologies in many cases and for all the wrong reasons christian do you have anything on that not on the cryptocurrency issue. I, I was, I was, I was about to just want to add uh, because time is passing. That um, one of the implications of what we're doing here is that we really need to be looking into. I mean, Matthew mentioned uh, mutual credit currencies, and that's essential. Uh, and, and more broadly speaking, non-debt-based ways of emitting money. Um, uh, that 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 might mean uh, indeed uh, a, a bigger role of central banks in emitting, you know, in in, in producing and, and circulating uh, national currency uh, from scratch, you know, without needing to go through this tedious and, and very ideologically warped uh, banking system as a as a means of injecting money into the economy. I mean, I'm I'm personally a a fan of modern money theory uh, in the sense uh, in, in the in the in the sense that it provides a profound revision of of how governments can step in and replace and, and central banks can replace the private banking system in not just in creating cheap inflation and and, and throwing money around uh, you know for all sorts of purposes which is basically what the banking system does right now i mean let's not forget that but uh, rather in and kind of using money in a disciplined uh you know sustainability oriented uh way without tying it to uh, the need to 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 a constantly ballooning debt a massive debt and that's, uh, that's, I think, I mean, it, this is not a specific proposal, but the logic of non-debt-based money, I'm aware of that the fact that, you know, we shouldn't fetishize government and, and, and think that mm -hmm. government is, is so much more wonderful than banks per se in principle, yet the idea of democratic accountability top down, you know, and the, the, the idea that money should be controlled by the political community and the citizenry and uh, injected into the economy in many other ways than, than what we have now is, is absolutely essential. Just to echo that, the proposals for central bank digital currencies exactly. are just like cash. So they are not a debt-based money. They, they are actually, uh, as you were saying, so they would address some of the issues we talk about in paper. 
Matthew, we, to say something in between, um, <clears throat> the central bank money is registered as a liability on the balance sheet, but it's not clear that it ever has to be paid back. And so there's uh, been some recent work done in the UK about quantitative easing, saying that uh, politically this is framed as debt that will have to be repaid back through decades of austerity. But on the balance sheet, it actually isn't. And so it could be that um, with the recent bailouts, especially um, central banks and governments are already doing MMT, but they're just not calling it that. Um, don't quote me on it because they can say it has to be repaid back at any time. But at the moment, they're spending as if it doesn't. Well, in the UK, the Chancellor has said that uh, they're going to start paying it back in two years and put up taxes and there's going to be lots of that to come. Um, I think there's a lot of uh, dreamy thinking about somehow we've post neoliberalism now where actually the bond markets are still in charge. And when they decide then governments will be having to listen at the moment. I'm uh, Kat Jenkins, you have a question about learning from ancient alternatives, which I think is quite a nice, a nice question perhaps for us to end on. I do. Um, it's really engaging to hear all the talk about potentially modernised currencies and the like, but I'm wondering whether there is anything that we can learn um, from some of the older traditions. And I'm thinking back to the, the Deuteronomy, um uh exhortations in the bible um and i'm just going to find it uh deuteronomy 15 where we're told um that we should forgive debt every seven years we should um, lend freely to those who are really in need so it addresses the heart issue of uh, smog like accumulating your assets and holding them to you but then says that we should reset that debt, um, to coin a phrase, er periodically, and gets into enough detail that it says you must avoid the evil thinking of saying to yourself, well, next year's a jubilee year, I need to, to write it off, so I'm not going to lend this year because I'll lose the lot. And the, a lot of the thinking around that is that it, it, it's a mechanism for helping to reset rising inequalities to encourage the wealthy to hold their wealth more lightly and see that wealth as a community asset rather than something that is personal to them. And that it also relies on a community of abundance and trust. So a feeling that if you need that grace given to you when you're not wealthy, that will be repaid to you in that fashion. Thank you, Do you think Kat. there's anything I'm... we can learn from that? I was thinking Matthew's a theologian, so maybe, maybe he's got the connections to, to draw upon. Well, I wouldn't um, take those things from the Bible absolutely literally, because the social and political context is very different. But certainly the, the message is about forgiving debt and not getting too attached to money, uh, making money available when you can. Um, all seems like good spiritual, if not political advice. Well, and, and to, just to add a final note, maybe that um, it, all boil, it all seems to boil down to the crucial difference that's, you know, kind of lurking behind our paper as between money as a spending tool and money as an asset, as long as, you know, money is emitted as debt and uh, suddenly is, you know, can be bought on the bond market in the form of bonds or whatever. 
then we, we, we're just tied into a system where this, what you can call this, the evil thinking is gonna, it's just gonna prevail because somebody's out there, you know, waiting for the debt to be repaid. And, and the fiction of a non-repayable debt, uh, uh, or as it were, the reality of a non-repayable debt and the fiction of a debt that needs to be repaid is probably at the core of some of what we're looking at here. Well, and we need to get away from the idea of uh, money as a thing. Um, Chris Cook has said money is a service, but also uh, what Jem has taught me over the years is that money is fundamentally something social. The debt relations are social and they're mediated socially. So I, I want to come on, on in on this, Kat. Um, one aspect of deep adaptation is if you realize that the society that you've grown up in, that's given you your sense of place in the world, your stories of self, other society and nature, and also the divine, is falling apart has, and has created a sixth mass extinction. There's deep, deep questioning about self, society, other, nature, deep questioning. And um, in my process of deep questioning, I've realized that the the origins of our omnicidal system are partly in the money system, in that we, because we have an illusion of this pure separability of self, we emphasize that sense of who we are as self. That leads to more of a sense of vulnerability and more a sense of fear. And so we're more attracted to, we're more worried about other people not giving us our basic needs. So we're more attracted to anything which promises us the ability to have power to get what we want, where it won't rust, it won't rot. And if someone doesn't like us, well, they'll still like our money. And so therefore we'll still get fed. And so what we've got is a system based on fear. And that's driving everyone's desire for money of any kind, other than the kinds of money that are explicitly about reconnecting us to each other in an ongoing interdependent interbeing form of relationship so that for me is why talking about money and monetary reform at local national and even the crypto field talking about you know this core problem in our society which comes from this fear um is important because it's one of the things we can rescue from this catastrophe of climate change caused by ourselves, or at least modern humans, not all of us, um, is insight. And if we don't, then we risk doing all manner of crappy things as we're panicked because of everything falling apart. So that's why I think it's so important to look at this stuff with, with, with this, these, these, these new eyes. Anyway, that was a little bit of a, a roundup thing. We've 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 had an hour together. Thank you, everyone. Um, please, please, please um, go back to the deep adaptation page that you saw this event on and find information there about the paper and about this video, which will be there. And please share it far and wide because um, there's no bank paying a PR agency to get economics journalists writing about this. There's no bank paying a PR agency to get YouTubers and conspiracy theorists promoting our ideas. So it's up to you. Thank you, Matthew, for an amazing amount of work over the last 18 months. You're awesome. And thank you. And Christian, thank you for bringing the 
you know, that economist's rigor to our um, thinking. And um, it's been really fun to work with you both. So um, I'll say goodbye. Should we say goodbye? Goodbye.